Welcome to the Level Up Podcast. I'm Wade Reed. I'm Aaron Pescucci. And today we're going to be covering some very interesting topics, all centering around the idea of sensory science uh, and what kind of education that brings to specialty coffee and what kind of value that brings to specialty coffee. We have some very heady topics and some very easy topics as usual. And I got to say, I'm excited about where this is going because I think sensory science and coffee has been in the dark a little too long and all these advances are going to be interesting. So Aaron, how you doing? I'm good, Wade. It's been a, a nice little week here doing some work, drinking a lot of coffee. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Can't go wrong. What have you been up to? Uh, it's been kind of a fun week. I had a day off with my boys. Actually, we met you at Ugly Duck that day and threw down some coffee that day. So um, that was fun. It threw off my work week a, li- a little bit, but you know what? That's totally fine because that's going to happen anyway. <laughs> it was a good day in the sun. Having yeah. the kids run around. Sun and then the rain and then the rain and then the sun. <laughs> Thank you, Rochester. And yeah, so let's dive into it. Sensory evaluation. Not new to specialty coffee. We could go back to the late 19th century when the purely visual evaluation of green coffee was replaced by what's called cup testing, or was called then cup testing, an evaluation of the flavor of roasted coffee. Periodic improvements in the 1930s, 80s, 90s, and as recently as 2016 have refined our understanding of the sensory qualities of coffee and how best to evaluate them. However, the application of sensory science to our understanding of coffee flavor is undergoing an overhaul in the specialty sector. In an article in the March issue of Stand Art Magazine, which if you've never read a Stand Art Magazine, get your hands on one. It's print only. You can order it. Um, We're maybe going to order one and try to leave it somewhere around town so that uh, other people can read it because just an excellent publication. Uh, Coffee sociologist and PhD candidate Noah Berger spoke to three leading lights in the sensory science revolution happening in specialty coffee. Uh, First, she spoke to Coffee Sensorium founder and professor at the University of Campinas, Dr. Fabiano Carvalho. Uh, Also, Coffee Science Foundation's executive director, Peter Giuliano, and anthropology professor at Vanderbilt and author of the recent book, Making Better Coffee, How Maya Producers and Third Wave Tastemakers Create Value, Dr. Edward Fisher, and each had a very unique take on the movement of sensory science in specialty coffee. So... From the first uh, expert, Dr. Fabiana Carvalho, Um, Dr. Carvalho really says that specialty coffee, by creating variation and by showing people there are lots of different, very high quality coffees to love, creates a need for sensory science in the consumer. Do you think it's something that enhances people's enjoyment of specialty coffee or makes it maybe even a little less accessible? Because we are always kind of struggling against the accessibility thing. I think it's going to start to stratify things a little bit more. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. The need for sensory science pertains to about maybe 10% of what's already a niche market, right? And, and it seems important to point out that the consumers who are going to engage in sensory science and coffee are the most valuable customers for a given coffee company, right? These are people who are buying gear. They're seeking greater differentiation. They seek rarer offerings. So they're a company's most devoted, most enchanted super fans. They're talking about the coffees they're drinking. They're, you know, bringing friends to your coffee shop or your roastery. Um, And in this context, isn't sensory science really just like another tool for marketing and messaging to further a brand's goals? You know, it could be, but there is a little bit there. You know, we have different glassware for things, and there's a reason for that. And it enhances or, you know, detracts from your experience with whatever it is. If you're drinking wine or, you know, coffee, you're going to have two completely different vessels there. They're each going to enhance, you know, based on the beverage's characteristics there. There's also something to be said for, you know, walking into a coffee shop and having, you know, the music playing, the color of the walls, and even the people in there. You know, I can think of two or three coffee shops around town that completely different vibe. And, you know, without throwing out names, you know, my opinion of the coffee in one of them is much higher than the other one. And there might honestly be no difference in technique and brewing what's going on there. Sure. No, that that's a good point. And I think that 
um, something that we definitely encounter in sensory science as well is that you can't separate out what you're tasting from the experience in the environment around you, right? For sure. You can't. They're, they're one in the same. And if you, I mean, unless you're going to put yourself in a black box, but that's even going to affect everything as well. You're not going to get any of that external stimuli that you might be getting. And that, I'd hesitate to say that might be a, a detracting experience from whatever you've got going on. So if you're engaging in sensory science, you're taking away some of what makes the coffee experience even more enchanting in some of these environments. Sure. And I think you mentioned uh, in our pre-show, you know, powwow there, something about a cup color. Oh, yeah. So I was actually going to, I was just looking up the name of the book, uh, The <laughs> Coffee Sensory and Cupping Handbook by Peter Giuliano, who was interviewed in this same article. We'll talk about him next. Uh, mentions that there have even been studies where uh, two more or less identical coffees, even from the same batch, were given to consumers and just put in different cups. And there is a solid correlation to the color of the cup and the enjoyment of the coffee. That's sensory science, though. For That's sure. That's the thing. Like, so is it like, is it good for us to know that and use that and in a way sort of manip- manipulate it? Not in, a, not in a nefarious way, but manipulate it. Um, or is it just like another another tool for getting more value out of out of people and out of our consumers? You could go either way with that. My initial thought there was, what if you you know knew enough about the sensory science that you could optimize your coffee shop, like just make it so that whatever you were charging, people felt like it was okay. What if it you know was just to get the records going for, you know, your coffee shop ranking versus other people's. If you could tweak it that way, I mean, that would be incredibly powerful. Well, I I think it would be shocking if people aren't already doing this. Sorry, Chris Lindstrom chiming in from the (laughs) producer station. Yes, appreciate it. Um, It it would be fascinating. I'd be shocked if some of the major, major chains are not doing that. And definitively, I mean, people's experiences in so many of these large shops are defined by their decisions. Absolutely. And I think that like, there's probably nothing like it's morally neutral at the end of the day. Like what isn't morally neutral is what is the brand's goals? You know, if that brand is one of the, you know, huge coffee brands that's been purchased by a hedge fund, you know, maybe it's not the, the, the best thing to walk in there and, and glory in the color of the cups. But I want to move on to what Peter Giuliano said. And, uh, yeah. Wow. Um, Peter Giuliano had a much headier take, much more academic take, believing that the spread of coffee coincided with the scientific revolution. And, you know, people start to love coffee as they're studying and they need the energy to keep studying. And so it's inherently academic. And of course, as you get into it, you're going to get into uh, more science of coffee and sensory science is just part of that. So um, I'm going to hold off my first comment and let Aaron talk before I start ranting. <laughs> Wade loves his, uh, his rants there and they're often uh, not displaced sometimes, but he's got that unique perspective there. Um, you know, I hesitate to say, but do we really need, you know, more academics and coffee? There's, there's already so much going on and, you can't keep up with it and half the people probably don't care about it. And one of the other things that, you know, has come up time and time again, at least in our conversations is how is something that's supposed to be bringing people together, really dividing them a little bit and pushing certain people out of this as, you know, something they enjoy and something that they can talk about and bring together. I think that that, um, that is a, a problem we encounter. I tend to believe that the answer the answer lies somewhere in the middle. I think I don't want to get rid of all academics in coffee, but this was easily the most academically pretentious take imaginable. <laughs> it ignores the interests of those who engage in sensory science. It ignores the profit motive of the companies. Just the bottom line of the companies who are going to use this has like no connection to the average person just trying to enjoy something they love or maybe just making coffee in their kitchen every morning. History did not determine where specialty coffee is now. We did. And so this super academic, well, of course it's going to you know lead to science's 
just, I think, totally uh, disconnected from the reality of the market uh, that we find ourselves in. So that is the shortest version of that rant I can <laughs> offer. I was going to say, the other thing that, you know, come up, came up in our talks there was, you know, we dive into this nerdery so far that, as you kind of mentioned in our first podcast there about, you know, the responsibility of importers and stuff, this is, you know, completely ignoring so many other issues out there. You know, one of the things that uh, we brought up and uh, talked about was uh, the climate change that's happening and how this thing we love could be disappearing. You know, it could be all of the academics there could be meaningless in like 20 years. Right, because it might not even be possible to grow a coffee that has the sensory range to even be employing the sensory science to to taste it to its fullest uh, capacity or, or potential. Finally, um, Dr. Fisher made a really interesting point, which I think is, is really important to bring up. Uh, he said that essentially we're disguising value judgments as the conclusions of sensory science or as uh, sensory observations. Um, and I think that like the single point grading system standardized by SEA used all over the world at every level of the industry represents a number of working assumptions that there are, that qualitative differences can be quantified, that qualitative differences should be rewarded and that companies and by extension producers can create value from the quality that they generate and discover. When we assign a cupping score to a coffee, we're saying as much about ourselves, our training, and what we believe about the market as we are about that coffee. So for example, a really common flavor profile that you find in Ethiopian coffees is like, it's got blueberry and it's got lemon. And why? Why? There are so many more interesting profiles in Ethiopia. And the coffees we buy and sell and assign value to are more of a response to the market than any intrinsic sensory quality. And so I think Dr. Fisher nailed it. We're making a value judgment. We're saying, because this tastes like lemon and blueberry, it's better. And it's not. There are so many more wild profiles you can get out of Ethiopia that we're skipping over because this is what sells. It's one of those things, too, where, you know, we've been given a description of the coffees from these different areas. You know, we just had a Rwanda, and if you just told somebody about a Rwandan coffee, they can probably list off the characteristics that they're expecting on that bag. And you could probably walk into any coffee shop that's selling a Rwanda, pick up the bag, and it's going to have those characteristics on it. This Rwanda came out of a jar. <laughs> is there a description on the jar? There is. <laughs> there is. <laughs> the other thing is, you know, that came from somebody at some point who said, oh, there's blueberry in this. Yeah. Okay. Well, who's to say the next guy was like, yeah, there is blueberry in this. Until... The next and next and next person. Now we believe there's blueberry in, right? It's it's intersubjective, but is it, but is it even relatively like sub or objective? And isn't it, isn't there that study? You know, five people say they see the gorilla, and then the next person is like, "I see the gorilla, but it wasn't actually there." You know, but they felt so. They felt it was so necessary to agree with the masses there because everybody else was saying this, so they must be wrong when they didn't see it. Confirmation bias? That's or it. is it, it, no. it might be another name for that type of bias. So tying it to the wine industry, uh, there was, you know, the drive in wine for so long was driven by a few people that defined the taste of the nation and defined the number scoring for wine for almost the entire country, if not a significant portion of the world. Uh, was a gentleman by the name of Robert Parker. Um, and this was, he was a huge wine writer in the, I believe it was the 80s and 90s. And he popularized a certain style of California wine, which was very rich, very bold, very fruity, uh, lots of oak. And that's what he preferred. He was the dominant wine writer of his time. And his scores became the de facto, his style of wine, the style he preferred, became the de facto scoring method for wine in the country, which also drove purchasing all over the country, which drove now the preponderance of huge Cabernet Sauvignons from uh, from California, driven by oak, driven by these huge blown-out fruits. 
uh, you know, Chardonnays that are buttery and huge. Right. Those are all driven by one person's taste. Yeah. And it's referred to as the parkerization of wine yep. in the U.S., driven by one person and his taste. And just now we're getting beyond that okay. and seeing the diverse voices in wine and the differences in style, the natural wine movement, right. to get those wider ranges of flavors. And I just wonder, are we, like, in the coffee world, where are we in that process? Are we just changing or is it, are we still right in the heart of the style is the style defined by these people and that's what it is? Yeah, I have like five responses to that. I'll <laughs> try to keep it brief. But when you talk about differentiation, especially with natural wine, you know, there are probably things, and correct me if I'm wrong, but would you say there are things, uh, flavors pl- present in natural wine that at some point would have been called defects in, in other wines? Oh, many wine people will continue to call them defects. And that's kind of a perfect segue into some of the other things we've talked about there is, is a defect really a defect? This was, this was my, yeah, my next, where I was going to go with this. And, and man, did I make that transition? I wow, what, great, how slick was that? Two great examples. <laughs> like, have you ever seen someone saying that like a Kenyan coffee has like a tomato paste flavor note? Because I've now seen this. What? And it used to be considered the worst possible defect for a Kenyan coffee. And now interesting. there's just a market for it. Huh. Like a tomato paste. Like literally, I, I'm i trying to remember where I was or what I bought or where I saw it. But someone said, Kenya tastes like tomato, like in with a straight face. And I'm like, tomato okay. Paste. Like, uh, so to my training, defect. And sure. uh, I know I'm not going to appreciate that particular flavor. The other little bit lengthier story here. So I go to a competition with Adam Solomon and some other folks. And at this shout out to Mr. Poofykins, <laughs> Mr. Poofykins, find him on Twitch right now. Um, Adam and I and some other folks are at a competition where they give you three options for coffees to choose to make espresso from, and you get to cup them. And then you have to decide which espresso you're going to make. And, you know, coffee's one, two, and three. We taste through them and we, huddle up afterwards and we're like we both chose the same coffee because it didn't it was the only one with no defects in it and one of the coffees we said was like that would have been good except it had like this heavy banana pepper defect and so we thought well it's probably like a sumatra or a png or something southeast asian that like you know it's like good if that's what you like but like to our training that was a defect literally <laughs> 90% of competitors use that coffee. The winner used that coffee, and it was from that competition. I walked away. I was like, a defect is only a defect until it ain't. Like, until somebody likes it, and once people like it, that's just the industry we're in. So where we're at with that, but what I want to say about that is that that's not coming from a place of intense sensory science evaluation. That's just what people are that's doing and liking, and, and it, these were all professionals. Right. So it's not just the consumers. It's like the people who, you know, like have really similar train to mine just from a different perspective are coming in and saying tomato paste, banana pepper. Like, why not? And I'm going, I could list why not. I know, like, chemically what's wrong with those coffees. But like, but is that the, you know, is so so what is really the value of sensory description versus like just giving people the coffee they like? I mean, that's going to help people. I mean, those descriptions are going to guide what they're looking for in terms of the coffees they like a little bit. But is that all of that tasting and those notes really going to, is it just going to give people a higher opinion of those coffees? If you walk into a place now looking for coffee and you see tomato paste on the label, you're going to give, you're going to be given one or two ways. You're going to be like, I've got to try that. Or you're going to be like, no, definitely not. It's completely off-putting. Why would you even put that on there? Why would you buy this coffee? And that's where, I mean, that's what you got back to. Those tastings that you were doing at that competition, somebody was like, no, this is great. And there you have it. And they won. Yep. Right, like in in a way, like I, I was definitely, I was. we were the odd men out and we were like, wrong quote unquote right <laughs> well the the question becomes so so I, i'm i consider myself an analytical taster so that that's how i go through things i like my wife uh my wife is an experiential taster 
like she'll relate it to experiences and times and is much better natural taster than I am. I'm a very analytical taster, whether it be spirits or you know beer or coffee. I, I try to isolate flavors and I don't always have to say it's a value judgment to say that there's a flavor there. Enjoyment for me is a wholly separate thing from analysis. Right. And I think maybe and, that's what we're, maybe that's the difference we're trying to split now. I commend Dr. Fisher. I commend all the, the, you know, uh, scientists, sensory scientists out there who are working on coffee. Grateful for it. I especially commend Dr. Fisher for drawing our attention to the fact that there is a difference between value and sensory judgments. And um, we're actually going to talk a lot more about that in the C block. So, um, no. We're skeptically hopeful. Is that a fair? Skeptically hopeful about the value potential of sensory science and specialty coffee, but uh, one place the results of sensory science consistently show up is on coffee bags. Uh, we've all seen the tasting notes on bags of coffee, read them with varying levels of credulity, like, you know, what do you think of the tomato paste uh, or, or the passion fruit note, uh, and wondered what's really going on behind the scenes when a coffee bag is released to the public. So in that vein, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be introducing our first ever recurring segment, Coffee Bag Reader. This episode of the Level Up Podcast is brought to you by the Food About Town Studio and also by Nominate Meals. If you want to get a fantastic meal, go to nominatemeals.com, order your meal for upcoming events. We have three events in Rochester every month, uh, two at... Uh, Three Heads Brewing, one at the Fatty Beer Company near the Strong Museum, and one in Buffalo at the fantastic Nowhere Lounge. You order a meal for two for $40 on our website. The kick is you have no idea what you're getting till you pick it up. We work with small minority-owned restaurants. We do it equitably where you have a great time. You get to learn about food in Rochester and Buffalo without doing any of the work. Go to nominatemeals.com to order your meal for an upcoming event today. All right, so thank you, Nominate Meals. Uh, we are back. We're going to be looking at a coffee bag in our first ever coffee bag reader segment. And just to run down real quick what bag we're looking at, uh, I'll give you an idea of the information on the bag. You can look this up. It's from Ultimo Coffee. Uh, the name of the coffee is Imperial. That's it. Just Imperial. That's what it says. Uh we also have the region and country that Imperial is from. It's from Nueva Segovia, Nicaragua. Uh, the processing of the coffee is also on the bag. It's a washed process. And then we get some varietal information. Interesting varietal spread here. Pacas, Catuayi, Catura, and Maracatura. And then we get tasting notes. Dark chocolate, toasted walnut, raisin. On the bottom, you will find a roast date. Uh, it was bought off the shelf at the 15th street location, only four days off roast. So good on them for freshness. Loved it. And on the back, two full paragraphs, <laughs> two full paragraphs about quality and sustainability in sourcing relationships. So Aaron, anything missing? First of all, just on a, an off put there, Imperial are we getting a higher coffee content here? Yeah, exactly. Yep, it's it's two hundred percent coffee. Two hundred percent. Offer than that, you know. I don't think there is anything they're missing. Um, at least from my perspective, you know, if I was going to pick up a bag, I'd be like, okay, this is the information on the coffee. I'm going to run with it. Yeah, exactly. They had four coffees on. We tried the other three while we were there. This was the only one we hadn't seen on, so we picked it up and took it home and. This bag is missing something. What? What did you this think? This coffee is a dark roast. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I so here from my perspective, as soon as I see those tasting notes, I know it's not for me. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's roast level on specialty bags is so anathema most of the most of the time. Now I've seen some very some very notable exceptions, but you know we assume light or medium roast levels draw out the most flavor, which is ostensibly the goal of specialty coffee. So. It would make much more sense to state explicitly when you're selling a dark roast. And I had no idea. And this is the coffee I bought. And this is the coffee I brought home. And I tasted it. I was like, oh, it's pretty bitter. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know if this was like a bad roast. And then I get on the website. So go on the website, apparently, and find out this is 
our answer to Dark Roast, according to Ultimo, a company I love, a company I respect, I got great service. I'd have to say, I, it does harken back to that French roast, Italian roast for me, as soon as I cracked the bag. It was fine. I was able to under-extract it, dial it in a little bit, and get rid of some of the most offensive flavor. Of offensive, like, some of the flavors I, I least enjoyed. This, uh, this brought back an experiential tasting for me uh, from my days at Pete's Coffee. This smelled exactly like Major Dickinson's blend. If you, I, I don't even know what that is, but I believe you. If you've ever been to a Pete's, it's one of their flagship roasts. Um, it's 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 got to be a dark roast. It was a blend of something we didn't even have. What it was a blend of at the time, it just came in a brown Pete's bag. But that's <laughs> what it was. So I think, uh, yeah, specialty coffee roasters. If you're if you're selling a dark roast, please alert the public. Well, to the interesting point, though, I mean, from what we were talking about earlier on what was written on the bag, if I read those tasting notes, I would assume that it was a darker roast. Yeah. Based on what they wrote. I literally just went for the coffee I hadn't tried yet. Yeah. And if it had flagged that in any way, like specific to like, this is the roast level, I might not have. Um, but it's it. I got to try all their coffees. Yeah. You so know? To me, that actually, without writing it down that actually screams darker roast to me because they've indicated that's what they're going yeah. for. Yeah. And it's hard, to, like some of those flavors, like, you know, toasted walnut, dark chocolate, you yeah. can get those, yeah. but you wouldn't list that first yeah. on coffees that have those necessarily. As a roaster, I have similar notes on coffees that are definitely not dark roast. So like, yeah. maybe I outplayed myself on this one. I just, <laughs> just totally out, out thought myself. Cause I would, I would normally, just assume, listen, this is, these are the best characteristics of the That's coffee fair. and they, and they roasted it to draw that out. This was an intentionally darker roast and I would have liked to know that. Um, yeah, for sure. But moving on, who cares about varietal? Why are we putting varietal on bags? Uh, I have an answer for this, but I, I'd love to hear what you guys think. You know, first of all, I had to, you know, go back to my biology concepts here because I was like, I don't think there's a difference in varietals. There is a little bit, but from my refreshing there, it shouldn't be the end product. You're looking at a little bit of physical characteristics that's going to differentiate them, and that's how they identify the plant. So it's still the same species. It's just got a different look to it. Might have, like, broader leaves. Maybe the cherries are a little bit bigger. But, you know, you look at a varietal, no one's going to know that. I know very little about varietal difference. I know there are are varietal differences. Sure. But if you asked me to clock the differences, yeah. I don't have any base knowledge of that. And if you've ever bought like a $50 bag of Gesha, you maybe understand how that varietal is different. That much I know. Right. And I have one sitting on my shelf right <laughs> yeah, now. It's you a box, what? not a bag, right? Well, Let's right, right. go back to our label though. What if you started putting those pictures on the back of the bag? I mean, like, I don't, I'm not sure that communicates anything more than the name of the varietal. I like... So I think for me, varietal was very paradigm shifting. Like that was when I started to really like think differently about coffee. When you first start drinking coffee, coffee's a beverage. Maybe when you start working in coffee, you learn all coffee's beans. And then uh, if you become, you know, when I started roasting, it's like coffee's green beans. And then when I really started learning about varietals, when I started thinking, oh my gosh, coffee is a treat. Like it's an agricultural product. And so like, I care a lot about varietal. I pay attention a lot to varietal. Is yeah, this going to be more important to the importer and the roasters than it is to the end customer there? It's exactly it because the varietal spread in most instances is determined by what grows best where. That's yeah. it. That's well, it. And then they, they put it together and hope it's a, a flavor profile somebody wants to buy. And Ultimo has uh, obviously a relationship with whomever they bought this from. And, uh, you know, it's they're buying it as is and throwing it all in the roaster. So, one last question there, Wade. Being the roaster there, do you actually look at the varietals and have differences in your roasting techniques based on what they are? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, but it is more correlated to what I expect from the flavor of the coffee uh, than it okay. is the varietal itself. Now, the way I think about it is varietal influences what I expect out of the flavor for sure. And then what I expect out of the flavor influences how I roast. Does gotcha. that make sense? So it's a little bit more roundabout and it, it has a lot to do with, with training and just having cupped however many 
hundreds of cups of coffee over the years, but like, yeah, absolutely. When I look at, um, and I could tell you there are Colombian coffees I won't buy because there's a varietal that comes out of <laughs> Colombia that I get really uptight about in the way that it, I feel like it ruins the Colombian coffee flavor profile. So yeah, it, it's a huge consideration for me as a roaster. And um, I think maybe not as much for others. And I can't say if one way is better than the other, but it's certainly worked for me. Um, but two paragraphs on the back of the bag. How much text is too much text? You guys know me. I'm verbose. But in this, like, it lo- it's so funny because it looks like something I would do and then regret it and have to, like, make fun of myself about, like, every time I talk to someone about it. Like, like if you need some reading tonight, I have it on the back of your coffee bag. So how do you feel about two paragraphs on the back of a bag? Well, let's first start this by the fact that I don't read. I, you know, if you give a book in front of me, it's it's not going to be my first choice of activity there. <laughs> Here I so, am using my eyes and reading like a sucker when somebody can talk to my ears directly. Well, that's true. Audiobooks have revolutionized how many books I get through. Audiobooks are great. Um, but yeah, if you've got two paragraphs, especially in that font size. And the font choice itself. I mean, this would not be my first choice in font. Like, they also used a different font for their logo. I swear we love Ultimo Coffee. I really do love this it, company. It looks like a typewriter, though, which is a great yes. style, but it's it's blurry when you put it on a bag. It's hard to read. I'm debating if it's Times New Roman. I don't think it is, <laughs> I, no. but it's similar. It lives in that typeface typewriter kind of world, which you know has a certain romance to it, I for suppose. For sure. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting It's uh, because it is boilerplate for the company. Not because it's specifically about that coffee. That, yeah, absolutely. So boilerplate for the company, I, I think it is valuable to have a story about your company on the back, especially if you're selling it in a grocery store versus at the roastery. So let's say this was being sold in your local uh, supermarché and you're buying this. You might not know anything about the, the coffee company and having a description on the back might be a great way to say, hey, is this a quality production place? Um, this is a decent write-up of that, but I would maybe I would make it more appealing to the eye and make it a little more striking. Sure. I, I hearken back to my time at Joe Bean when I was roasting for them, and they wanted to put something similar on the back of a bag redesign, and I wrote like seven or eight sentences and was told it was too long. So, <laughs> like... <laughs> You know, what? it's not a blog post. I mean, it's a paragraph, but this is two paragraphs and like serves a function. Um, thank I'm, you for looking on the bright side, Chris. I mean, I guess I'm a little skewed too on that because you go into uh, our local Wegmans there and we've got a lot of third wave companies putting shelf stock out there. And I've been to most of those coffee shops through my life. Who travels to taste coffee here? Uh, yeah yeah every place i go yeah Yeah, absolutely so it defines it is the crux of travel for me is where can i get a quality cup of coffee or how do i have to temper that by bringing the best version i can bring to where i'm at yeah exactly that what are the other reasons to even travel exactly (laughs) i don't understand so you know you go to blue bottle you taste their coffee you meet the people who work there you've got an idea of their company you know Two or three years ago, that wouldn't be in Wegmans. Now I walk through and they've got bags of coffee there. Absolutely. And so I've already got an idea of that company when I see that. But going back to Chris's thing, I have to agree, not everyone's going to know that. No one's been to, you know, San Francisco to their first shop there, except for maybe me when I dragged my family through five coffee shops on Father's Day. It is an interesting shop. It is. It wasn't my preferred shop when I was in San Francisco, but... We we can talk about travel and coffee any day of the week. Yeah, that'll be a good one. So let's turn now from the application of sensory science to a whole revolution in sensory science standardization as we take a look at the SCA value assessment. In April of 2023, so just a few weeks ago, the Specialty Coffee Association, the SCA, released the beta version of its new value assessment, a tool designed to, quote, evaluate, expand, and evolve the 2004 cupping protocol into a more holistic coffee value assessment system, which provides a full, detailed picture of a specialty coffee and the attributes for which it is valued, end quote. 
The cupping score, or affective assessment, will now be considered as just one of the four potential sources of value used to describe a specialty coffee alongside physical, sensory descriptive, and extrinsic assessments. Each assessment recognizes that value in specialty coffee can come from varied sources, as reflected in SCA's new definition of specialty coffee. Quote, Specialty coffee is a coffee or coffee experience that is recognized for its distinctive attributes, resulting in a higher value within the marketplace. Whoa. Okay. There's a lot of words there. This Is this the back of a coffee bag? This is heavy. The beta version is 50 pages long. Wow. Uh, It has like four glossaries. Four yes. separate glossaries. In prepping for this, Wade sent me this link and said, there are 50 pages. And I said, really? How many footnotes? Is it, is it I didn't footnotes? know you don't read. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. I put through a good effort there. That's it. I, was a, It was a dense topic, too. We're going to change your mind on reading yet. <laughs> uh, so this is it's fascinating to me. The, the 2004 cupping protocol has been. It's just sacred scripture in specialty coffee. It underwent a lot of changes around 2016. There was um, a whole lexicon added. The coffee flavor wheel was changed a lot. Counterculture even made their own flavor wheel that was like a little bit funkier and more fun um, at the same time. So there were just, it's really interesting to me to feel like we're still having this conversation, still refining and actually so much so that we're going to change this over wholesale. So um, let's talk about how the new assessment draws on recent insights of sensory science and applies them to specialty coffee. Um, Previously, the cupping protocol could be classed under the effective assessment, meaning that some type of judgment about value or preference was included in the score. So for example, the 2004 cupping form doesn't just ask like how much acidity is present but it implies that the cupper should mark the intensity, type, and enjoyability of the acidity represented in one single esoteric number. So what does that number really represent for each cupper? Is it more of an intensity scale? Does it represent more of the uh, enjoyability scale? Is it more of like a type, like, well, this got a lower score because it was malic acidity. Is that really the question? Like, just because you prefer citric or, or phosphoric acidity? Like, so... That was a very um, unclear aspect of the old cupping score. So they're really trying to delineate between the categories of intensity, which is a which is what we get from quantitative descriptive analysis, and um, enjoyability, which is what we're going for with more of the effective analysis. Like it seems to me like that's a that's a good idea. At least you go to the affective assessment, you know what that's assessing. You go to the, the quantitative assessment, you know what that's assessing. And and each one has its own value, assumedly, correct? So are those separated? They are two completely separate assessments that you fill out two completely separate forms for. And they're yeah. separate scores completely. They're not aggregated into a whole. Only the affective gets scored. The quantitative descriptive is just that. It's just descriptive. Like, this intensity, that intensity, this intensity, that intensity for the different characteristics of the coffee. Right. Mm. So if there's a floral attribute there, you then go further and describe the intensity of that floral attribute for a specific coffee there. Mm. Exactly that. Yeah. Yep. Where are we landing with this? Like, is this, does this seem like a useful tool? Like, like Aaron, just as someone who's maybe not regularly scoring coffee or not, you know, drinking coffee with a view to the score, because when I get something in from an importer, I'm really aware of their cupping score. How do you feel about going from a single point, really esoteric, here's what, here's a number, it means something, to this much more segmented approach? Um, I am, I'm much happier with that idea. Um, I'd like to see some of that stuff on the bag, um, or even... On the bag? Yeah, or right. even like uh, on this Ultimo bag, you know, you got that QR code. What if you walk in with your phone, you can pull that up and it's got those intensities there. That's going to allow me more than tasting notes for me anyway. You know, I've got a, a decent palette, but I'm definitely not pulling out perfect notes like some people are. So if I can look at the acidity scale and some of these other notes there and see where they are, I'm going to pick up a lot more insight from that than anything else. Wow, that's... 
I mean, that's great. I I think of it as so much less accessible. You're saying this is a more accessible. Well, so I think we're also speaking from a pretty experienced coffee tasting perspective. For me, I 100% agree. I would I would adore that uh, that level of detail, but I made, you know, I, I have a, I have my uh, WSET level two spirit certification. I'm a spirits judge. Right. So right. like, I love going into that level of detail, uh, but I could see that being uh, really challenging and also could be a turnoff of, that's ah, just too much information for me. I just want something that tastes good. Right. Um, other, for me, it'd be awesome. Yeah. The other thing I was remembering, correct me if I'm wrong here, but these intensity scores are on attributes that they are soon that they're assuming are going to be in all coffee. Yeah, the basic attributes that we assess coffee on. Yeah, definitely. So there's not going to be anything that's going to jump out at you because you know these are going to be in all coffees. So you've already got that baseline for what you're expecting, and then this is going to kind of calibrate you a little bit. And I'm just talking off the top of my head here, but if you go further, so you take a look at a specific roaster and they're giving these attributes, you're going to be able to calibrate to that roaster quite a bit more. You then can branch that out to, you know, if you're comparing different roasters, you might be able to even calibrate to the roasters, you know, what you're expecting from, you know, say Stumptown versus what you're expecting from Ultimo here. And if you kind of know what they're doing, you might even be able to transgress that I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> you might be able to transpose that onto the different coffees and pick out one from Stumptown that you like and have it be kind of equivalent to the other one that maybe is only available at that point. Yeah, so that is maximizing consumer value. You're saying this is a tool where people can point their money at exactly the thing they want. And yep. that's the idea of the value assessment. If they know what they want. If they know. <laughs> I, I mean, like, because you, you, you can say we're starting with a baseline if we have, you know, the basic characteristics, you know, flavor, acidity, body, mouthfeel. But even the perception of what acidity in coffee means, like, you will never find to, like, untrained coffee consumers who we're ostensibly targeting who agree on exactly what that means or... So- yeah, I mean, there's so many so many coffee consumers where acidity is the is the bane of their coffee existence. You know, I had a thought here. Ooh, what if we baseline some of these things? I mean, realistically, we could titrate coffee <laughs> and uh, oh, assign sure. it a a standard pH. I mean, that would be really interesting to do. Yeah, and most I I hate to be the wet blanket, but <laughs> most coffee falls within a really like similar level of pH, even when the perception of acidity is different because Mm. the perception of acidity comes from flavor compounds that aren't actually acids. So kind of a bummer there (laughs) and and not just flavor compounds, but also aromas. Um, Nice. So you would actually find that to be not as objective as it seems. It's not the best way to communicate the intensity of a given coffee's acidity. Um, So the big question for me is, do we think the industry as a whole will adopt the value assessment the way they've adopted the cupping protocol? Because one of the strengths of the old cupping form was its simplicity. You could literally print four score sheets on a single piece of paper. Right. The new form is so highly technical and intentionally complex. Each assessment is at least a page worth of work for the cupper uh, of four assessments uh, for each single coffee. Uh, also, only one assessment has a readable score. Everything else, you have to look at these intensity scales um, or you have to like for the extrinsic uh, qualities, which we didn't even get into, which is like, uh, where does the coffee come from? What certifications does it have? How long ha- has this uh, farm been growing coffee? How big is the farm? You know, like the micro region, all these kinds of things. Um, you actually just have to read it. Sorry, Aaron. But... <laughs> I'm, so, not, I'm not letting that one go. So, no. uh, I mean, how how does, you know, when, we, when we're talking about all this stuff, like, how, how long does it take somebody to do this kind of evaluation? Like, this, like, when, I, when I'm doing, like, spirit judging, I have, uh, we have, like, eight samples and we have an hour. Like, that's the amount of time I have. I can't write nearly that much in that amount of time. I, I think it would be incredibly different to, difficult to cup eight coffees with this assessment. 
Yeah, it sounds these four assessments. Sounds super challenging. Now, the extrinsic assessment obviously doesn't take, it doesn't require that you be at the cupping table, right? Mm. It just requires that you know about the coffee. The physical assessment, which is kind of, it's kind of like the first one where you assess the green coffee, is can also be very quick because um, you're sure. mostly looking for the major defects. But Aaron, do you think like specialty coffee professionals in general are going to get as excited about this? I don't know if they're going to be as excited. I think like you, they might have this idea of it's going to be this extra work. How are we going to get this done? I did have one thought, though, and I can't find it here, but when I was looking through the beta information, there was an interactive graphic for that intensity stuff there. And, you know, in the five minutes I was looking at it, prepping for this, it was a pretty easy click-through on that. You know, could they possibly have that to kind of guide them through, you know, a, a faster assessment there? It's one of the glossaries, I believe. Um, in terms of adoption and using this, if that's the way it's going, it might go that way. It, you know, I think this goes back to our defect, you know, discussion there. If more people are doing this, you're either going to have to catch up or you're going to have to make a pretty good argument as to why you're not doing it. But yeah, are more people doing it now or is SCA doing it and saying this is better? And then it kind of becomes like, it, once it's in the hands of professionals, do we agree with what they're saying? I honestly think, uh, I could point to like three most likely outcomes, but Chris, it looks like you have something to say. Yeah, I, I think, so when, when standards are set by organizations that um, that are fundamental to the largest competitions and that your certification in that organization matters for your standing within the industry, regardless of how much anybody dislikes or likes it at this point, um, you, in many ways, you very, you have very little choice unless you're not participating in these, in these systems. Now, does that mean everybody cares? That's where the separate thing comes. If people can derive value from those detailed descriptions, um, and if that the people who are doing these can take the time well, it might take 15 minutes to do one coffee. It might take half an hour to do one coffee. Right. Um, do you have the time to give it the level of dedication and that kind of tasting information? Um, who's paying for that time? Uh, is it the end customer? Is it uh, training that you need to do? Or are you being paid as a, as a judge? All these things are going to come into play to whether or not this is in the end successful because the detail can be valuable. It can be excellent, but the time and the dedication it takes to do that kind of analysis, all the different resources it would require. Yeah. That is not, none of that is low. And like the training to get to that level of detail, that's not nominal. That's, that's work it's that a, you have to put in to get good at this. It's a ton of work. And I think that the beta does a pretty good job describing how at different points in the industry, different aspects of the assessment might be more valuable subsections. I I like that idea. That makes sense to me. So like leaning in heavy to the physical assessment, if you're a coffee producer is, is going to be really good for you. And then the research that that might cause you to, you know, engage in, that's going to be a big help. I think for coffee producers, you know, once you're, once you're at the market level, obviously the most important thing is knowing what your people want. And so that affective assessment is obviously going to be the most important thing, but uh, your people also want a good story. Like we know that about specialty coffee, people love a good story. So those are extrinsic, like the beta covers that and, and encourages that. And so I think if out the gate, they're saying not everybody has to use every assessment. I think we're looking at three potential outcomes. I would say first the combined form, which severely shortens the extrinsic assessment and leaves the physical assessment off entirely is probably going to gain the most popularity, um, or it could. Uh, Another possible outcome is that only the affective assessment with its easily communicated, though not easily calculated, that's a really interesting point, cupping score uh, could become popular. Um, Or third, the assessment 
I mean, I think there's a realistic possibility that because it's so much more complex and because there are so many people who are so deep in the industry that would need to retrain to it, it, it could get ignored and people could continue to use the old single point system even with all of its scientific inaccuracies. And so I think it's going to be the most interesting to see how SCA positions this as something that um, it's going to require a lot of work but is going to be worth it. I agree. I think it's going to be worth it in the end. It's going to be a shift in the whole industry, though, especially, you know, all the way, like you said, from the producers. This gives them a target to hit. You get you've got two kinds of producers out there. You've got the mass market guys and you've also got the specialty guys. And maybe you're starting out, you're working at a mass market producer. If you want to start your own subplot, you've got a goal what you can do now. And it's a, it's a clear cut goal to get to, you know, something that's going to be for the specialty market there. Yeah. I mean, those kind of, uh, you know, that kind of clarity, Assuming it can be made clear. I think that, to me, that's the the biggest note about all of that is how do you take that 50-page document and distill it into clearly actionable information for the different phases, like you said, and if that's part of it, and you can turn it into a, you know, hey, here's a one-sheet. Here's your oh, one-sheet yeah. infographic, and here's here's how this is adding value to you as a roaster. Here's how it's adding value to you as a um, you know, as a, as a coffee shop, here's how it adds value to you as a coffee consumer. If you can turn those into quickly and clearly factual information on how this makes your coffee life better, that's where you're going to see the adoption. That's what's going to drive all that stuff is if it makes sense for every step in the process, that's where it's going to work. And I love the SEA released this as a beta and said, like, this isn't the final form. We will hone some of this. We will be able to organize this differently. And actually, the the physical assessment is still in alpha. It's not even entirely clear yet how that's going to shape up. So um, I, I, think, I, I think it's a great shift. I think bringing in more sensory science is great. I think it has a ton of potential to add value at every point in the supply chain and in the market. And I hope you know, I hope it succeeds. So Aaron, any final thoughts tonight? I think we covered everything pretty well. It's going to be really interesting to see where this goes. This is the beta. This is the first time we're getting it. It's newly released. So it'll be interesting to see the commentary from some other people as well. Yeah. I think one way to bring this to a level where people can use it is to get people talking about it. And hopefully we'll be doing a little bit of that too and breaking down some different elements the more I'm diving into this dense, dense document. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to producer Chris Lindstrom and the Food About Town studio. Special thanks to our sponsor, Nominate Meals. If you like the show, you can find us on Substack or Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and tell your friends to listen. Thanks to my co-host, Aaron Pescucci, Level Up Social Media Manager, Sapphire Corshane. You can find us on Instagram at levelup.wny. Please reach out with any questions or requests for future episodes. DM us and someone will read it. Thanks and uh, enjoy your coffee.